All right, here we go. Welcome, welcome, welcome to the Nintendo Watcher Podcast. I'm Justin, joined as always by my co-host, Matthew. Matthew, how's it going, man? Doing well, Justin. How are you doing? I'm doing well. Today, we've got something a little bit different. We're debuting a new series. Uh, we're, we're calling it our Show and Tell series. So Matthew and I have been talking for years about games and, and recommending games to each other. Um, so we thought maybe we'll just start recording this and make it a, a bigger series. So Matthew, I'll, I'll pass it over to you to talk a little more about show and tell. Sure. Yeah. Uh, since I'll be doing the the lead on this first, you know, run of the the series, um, you know, I'll, I'll go over the kind of ground rules, the expectations for you know what the show and tell series will look like, what you can expect from these episodes. Um, you'll see them probably once a month or so. I think our current plan is to, to aim for about you know beginning of the month, mid month, depending on you know how the schedules align. Um, you know, we're aiming for one, once a month at least, though. We'll, we'll hit you with one of these episodes. We'll be alternating between either myself or Justin delivering the um, the episode. And so for this first one, um, what it's basically going to be is a, a kind of history lesson slash um, recommendations of a series or single standalone game that we think the other person knowing that they've had little to no experience with the series haven't played the game before um, a game that we want them to check out that we think is worth their time um, and, and so it's going to kind of play a, a dual purpose as a you know let's introduce people to games and series that we think are worth checking out and worth playing um, and that'll spin off into kind of a, a kind of a game club if you will we'll be checking back in about two months after each of these episodes with the the games that we're playing um, from the perspective of the other host. So this first episode is going to center on a, a, a little JRPG series that I'm a big fan of um, that I know Justin has uh, dabbled in just a tad but never really gone more than just a toe into and that is Square Enix's Saga series of JRPGs. Um, if I recall correctly, Justin, you probably have a cumulative four hours in <laughs> Saga games at this point is that uh, fair to say? Uh, that's about right. I've I've played some of Frontier. I've played um, some of the newest one, um, Scarlet Grace. Yeah, Scarlet Grace. Yeah. But I don't know if it counts. Or I guess you'll get into this when you get into the background a little bit more. But I have played Final Fantasy Legends one. Oh, absolutely, absolutely. Yeah, we'll talk a little bit about that uh, in the first half of the show. We're going to kind of go over a history of the series, talk about its creator, some of uh, how it slots into the larger square canon of JRPGs. Um, does have a kind of interesting uh, starting point uh, at the very least, and, and it draws from some things that I think um, only it does in Square Enix's you know stable of, of JRPGs. So. Yeah, we're we're going to try to, you know, start there, kind of 
you know, I'll walk us through a little bit of the series, and then um, I'm going to give Justin the task of playing through one of the games in this series over the next two months, at which point he's going to come back and host an episode where he talks about his experience with the game. Did he like it? Did he hate it? You know, what was it? Uh, you know, how did that experience go? How far did he get? Um, you know, all of that stuff. So, but to, we'll, we'll to see how it goes. a little bit more, yep. though, so I have played a little bit of these games, very, very little. Right. And I've talked to you off mic about this for years. Yeah, I really wanted to like Frontiers, and that's part of what's you know sparked this whole conversation. I really, really wanted to like Frontiers because it was that you know early um, mm -hmm. PlayStation style JRPG, and there are so many others like that that I really love, and I love um, a lot of Square Enix's other JRPG series, but it was just the openness of frontiers i know you'll get to this <laughs> but it was the openness not knowing what to do and i just felt like I, I kept spinning my wheels playing it so um i'm really excited to learn more about the series um and take a, a second look at one of the games whichever one we decide but one of the games um, in the next month or so yeah yeah and you know that that was largely the you know the the spark like you said is you know i've been uh very vocal about my love of this series and uh um you know i want more people to experience because i do think that it despite being one of the more obtuse jrpg series out there um it, it's got a lot of really good things to recommend it um and it's got a rich history of you know different games and different experiences that um, can help people kind of dip into it um you know if you pick the right one you might the series might click with you more than just kind of picking a random saga game and jumping in because um they a lot of them play very differently um but there's so much that carries over between that maybe finding the right entry game can can spark a love of the series that carries through to you know the rest of the series and so that's kind of the hope here is by the time we're done with this conversation you'll be excited to play through one of the games in the series and when we revisit it in a few months hopefully you'll be uh, you know a fan of the series check out a couple more of them so yeah well in addition to yeah. your overview of, of like the history of the series too i want to hear about your history with it where did you come in what was the, the... oh absolutely yeah all right let's do yeah, it yeah we'll, we'll get to that we'll get to that i promise so um I'm going to start with the just kind of background, um, you know, what is the Saga series, where does it come from, why, you know, how active has it been in, throughout the history of Square Enix. Um, but in order to have that conversation, it's really important to start with the, um, you know, the, the designer, director, producer, writer, whatever, you know, hat you want to put on him for wh whichever game. Um, he's pretty much done it all for the series since its inception. Um, he is a man by the name of Akatoshi Kawazu. He's been with Square Enix since uh, 1985, um, all the way back in the... Final Fantasy 1 and 2 days, where he worked as, um, I believe it was a battle designer, um, which you know, uh, will make a lot of sense uh, as we move through uh, the Saga series. Uh, we'll talk a lot about battle systems and what makes them so unique, because they do stand out as uh, a departure, a stark departure from a lot of other Square Enix RPGs. But Kawazu's been attached to the series since the beginning, and he's remained the, you know, head in either a director, writer, or uh, producer role for every game in the series. Sometimes all three at once. I mean, he's, he's, he wears a lot of hats. Um, he's a busy guy. And 
he's a busy guy. He's, you know, he's one of the top executives over at uh, Square Enix. He was a board member for a while, um, got back really heavily into just the development side of things in recent years. Um, and he's, you know, kind of sparked this resurgence in the saga series that we've seen in the last couple of years with all of the re-releases and remasters of that series. Um largely taking place on our beloved Switch console. You know, it's kind of become the home uh, alongside the PC, but it's it's really become the home of the the Saga series at this point. You can find nearly every game in the series uh, on the Switch. Wow, um, really? And yep, for the most part they're all there at this point. Um with a, a handful of notable exceptions that we'll talk about um as we kind of go through the series. But What's cool about this series and why I, I, I think it's one that, you know, a lot of gamers should check out is that it pulls from some design philosophy that differs, uh, you know, from like a Final Fantasy or a Dragon Quest. You know, those those games have pretty, you know, linear stories. They generally have a plot that moves you from point A to B. Um, you know, the beginning to end is not often you know, that uh, difficult to follow. Um, the, you know, the story is kind of crucial to a lot of these games, with the exception of maybe the first two Final Fantasies, but even those games had a pretty heavy narrative element. Whereas the Saga games tend to put gameplay ahead of narrative in a lot of ways. Um, they do things with combat systems and JRPGs that are unique. Uh, leveling is not a thing in the Saga series. You don't have character levels, unlike a, a Dragon Quest or a Final Fantasy. Your characters level up in a more traditional, uh, like, kind of... Uh, Western style, I think, where where like I'm thinking of something like uh, the Ultima series, where you know you get skill ups and things like that, or um, you know it, it pulls a lot from Dungeons and Dragons and the Wizardry series of of dungeon crawlers, where combat is kind of the focus, the story takes a back seat, side quests are where a lot of the narrative you know highlights are delivered um, and all of this comes from Kawazu's love of Western game design uh, and so that's a philosophy that holds you know non-linear storytelling open worlds um, that that sort of those those touchstones those hallmarks of Western RPG design um, have really heavily influenced the trajectory of saga games um, but to think about you know where this series slots into um, Square Enix's canon of JRPGs, it's it's notable to mention the the first three games of the series, which uh, do not actually go under the saga um, the the saga uh, you know headline. I, I should say that moniker, uh, yeah. Yeah, the, the, the moniker of, of Saga. In fact, they were um, the Final Fantasy Legends series. And this is uh, particularly Legends 1 and 2. Um, Legends 1 and 2 in particular were um, the, the real Saga games. Saga 3 is also, um, uh, you know, Legends 3 is also technically considered Saga 3 in Japan. Um, but in the U.S., we got them as Final Fantasy Legends 1 through 3 first two being the more uh, reminiscent of, um, you know, uh, Kawazu's style and, and the the kind of direction of that series. He was not uh, as involved, uh, I believe, really at all in the third game of that series. But 
those games came out here in the U.S. as uh, Final Fantasy Legends. They were recently re-released in the collection of Saga Final Fantasy Legends collection. It's a mouthful, but it's there on the Nintendo Switch that packages the the, the three uh, Final Fantasy Legends games into one package. These were Game Boy games. Um, came out very early on um, in the Game Boy's life cycle um, and have been re-released and remastered and re remade in, in various forms, uh, mostly Japan exclusive, uh, the, the the remakes of the, the first two games. Um, what, but was we have... It, I'm mm -hmm. sorry, was calling it Final Fantasy just an attempt to cash in on the popularity of that franchise? Or what, what was the, the deal there? I believe, yeah, it, similar to how we got... Um, you know, Final Fantasy VI localized to Final Fantasy III um, because the other games didn't, you know, between two and, and six didn't make their way over to the U.S. Um, the Saga series was not very well known uh, here, and in order to help with that success, you know, it, they went with the moniker that was familiar in, in the U.S. and, mm -hmm. and in, uh, abroad. And so that is a large part of it, which, you know, did, you know, down the line created a little bit of confusion. Um, you know, not a lot of people are aware that these are the, the original Saga games. In fact, um, Saga, for most people, doesn't really start until um, the, the romancing Saga series. So briefly, um, before I, I get too far down this, this rabbit hole of you know, what games, you know, what is a Saga game, what series are we talking about? Um, unlike Final Fantasy, which has maintained its mainland games under a single moniker, right? Final Fantasy 1 through upcoming 16, right? Uh, mm -hmm. With a few notable exceptions. Uh, the mainland games are, are numbered. They're Final Fantasy 1 through 16, right? Those are your mainline uh, you know, core games. With, you know, Some people would argue things like X2 and the, the Lightning spinoff, or the 13 spinoffs um, are also you know, mainline games with slightly different naming conventions, but the Saga series has um, kind of continued to reinvent itself throughout its history. Um, we start with the uh, Final Fantasy Legends series on the Game Boy, and then with the Super Famicom uh, games, we get the Romancing Saga series. And this is the one that um, is perhaps in recent years most well-known among players uh, of, of these games because they were remastered and re-released on um, the Nintendo Switch. At least the second and third were. The first one um, was at one point remade as a um, 3D JRPG for the PlayStation 2, I believe it was, under the moniker... Um, uh, I think it was Minstrel Saga, if I recall correctly. Let me uh, double check on the name there. Um, it's been a while since I've I've played that particular entry. Um, so, <clears throat> sorry, apologize. Um, yeah. So, Romancing Saga um, One was re-released on the PlayStation Two as a full 3D remaster known as Romancing Saga Minstrel Song. Um, this is the game that was recently announced as being remade or remastered and soon to be re-released on modern consoles and PC um, uh, in a, a recent uh, saga like uh, showcase basically they had a, a an anniversary uh, feed uh, in Japan where they announced that Romancing Saga 1 the Minstrel Saga remake is getting a, an additional remastering coming out soon on uh, you know modern consoles including the switch so 
So this is this might be a dumb question, but yep. I didn't pick up the Romancing Saga two when it came out for the Switch because I was like, oh, I didn't play the yep. first one. Is is I mean, most of the time with with Square Enix's JRPG series, you don't have to play the previous yep. version. Wasn't sure about this one. How does no, it that work? Is. It, yeah. So so what's what's interesting is you know unlike I said you know Final Fantasy we have. You know, Final Fantasy 1 through 16, they're all the same. The Saga series has a bunch of sub-series within it, but those sub-series are not really interrelated games either. Hmm. It's a somewhat confusing naming convention that has continued since the Final Fantasy Legends moniker through Romancing Saga. All three of the Romancing Saga games are standalone experiences. You can pick up any of them and play them without having to have played the previous ones. Um, the mechanics are really all that carry over. Characters are brand new, um, you know, even within the series, you know, the way the characters are, you know, or the, the gameplay is, is presented, uh, you know, evolves a little bit, changes between uh, games. And so you can really jump in at any point in the series. And that's one of the great things about the Saga series is there is no one game to, you know, jump into the series with Got because it. what makes them... Saga games is consistent between entries, but the narrative is such a minor element and the connections between games are nearly non-existent um, to the point where any game is a, a suitable entry point, um, though some lend themselves better to new players because the systems are a little more simplified or clearly, you know, more clearly articulated to the, the player. Um, but the Romancing Saga series, uh, were originally Famicom, you know, Super Famicom games. Um, they're all, you know, uh, two and three have been on the Switch for a couple of years now. They are some of the, in my opinion, the best Super Nintendo JRPGs out there. Um, not a lot of people played them originally because they, you know, they weren't, uh, or I should say in the U.S., not a lot of people played them originally because they weren't uh, available for a long time um but now that they are uh i'm seeing a lot more people kind of get excited about this series where the u.s really got its i would say you know where saga really became kind of a name in uh jrpgs was with the playstation entries the the original playstation entries which were the saga frontier games and these are the ones that um, are probably the most accessible of the different Saga series. Uh, we have Saga Frontier 1, which has, uh, I believe now, with the uh, you know remaster, uh, nine different characters, uh, nine different stories you know, uh, that you can play through. Um, or is it eight now? One, two, three, four, five, six, seven. Yeah, eight main characters now with the, uh, with the uh, addition um, <clears throat> of the cut character from uh, the original game. And so you've got uh, eight different character stories that you can play through. Uh, some of them a little bit connected to one another, but uh, each individual story is a complete experience on its own with only a little bit of overlap between characters for each uh, narrative. Uh, the exception being the, um, the Fuse storyline that was added to the most recent series, which kind of is the greatest hits of all the other characters. Uh, can't be played uh, fully until you've beaten it uh, with every other character anyways. Hmm. But regardless, um, they then went a very different direction in Saga Frontier 2, which um, does sort of a branching narrative uh, sort of uh, multi-generational narrative about, uh, you know, uh, two different heroes uh, experiencing this kind of multi-generational uh, conflict uh, from different sides of the, of the conflict. Um, and that game, uh, you know, 
a lot of hit or miss for for some uh, fans of the series. It had some really beautiful, like hand painted, uh, almost watercolor esque backgrounds um, that really uh, you know hold up really well today. Um, but it had kind of a very non linear, kind of obtuse story arc where you would play through uh, different scenarios that could be uh, approached in different orders. Um, there were some orders that if you went you know, did one mission before another, it would lock you out of other, you know, events and story beats. And so, um, complicated game where you, you know, or I should say a complicated series where if you don't play these games with a guide, you can often miss some really interesting story uh, beats, some entire characters, entire locations, uh, dungeons, bosses, um, you know, items, yeah, uh, and- abilities. In, in my reading, background reading on this to, to get ready for this playthrough, the one thing that keeps coming up is you're probably going to fail during your yeah. first playthrough. Like yeah. you're going to get through it, but you're going to miss so many characters and mm-hmm. items and uh, story beats like you're saying. It's just like inevitable with that first playthrough. Yeah. And so, you know, the, the series has continued to evolve, uh, you know, and do new things with each entry. Uh, after the Saga Frontier series, when that ended, uh, the PlayStation 2, there was a, a release of a game called Unlimited Saga. And this was a standalone entry in the series. It didn't have a, a one, a two, or three, like uh, most of the other, uh, you know, arcs in the, the Saga franchise. But this one was actually sort of a board game. Um, you went through dungeons in a, you know, a, a world map that was essentially a board game with random encounters and a lot of uh, luck-related mechanics. Um, it was a commercial uh, and critical failure. Um, beloved cult favorite among some fans of the series, but largely a, just a, a miserable experience from most people's accounts of, of the game. Was that um, PlayStation? That was PlayStation 2. Okay. And then it was 14 years from there until the PlayStation Vita released Scarlet Saga Grace. So 14 years elapsed between Unlimited Saga and Scarlet Saga Grace, or uh, Saga Scarlet Grace on the PlayStation Vita. Uh, now on pretty much every other console you can imagine. Um, but in the meantime, they made a digital card game, a browser-based game, and a gotcha mobile game, right? So the series didn't quite go away, but after the critical and commercial failure of Unlimited Saga, you know, some of the members branched off and, and created uh, Last Remnant, which was a, a very Saga-esque uh, JRPG for, I believe, the PS3 yeah, um, right. initially. Um, it takes a lot of the um, the same beats, you know, the open world, the non-linear uh, development, most of the story and bulk of the material found in side quests versus the mainline uh, quest, uh, missable characters, you know, uh, events, etc. Um, but it was, you know, uh, merely supervised by Kawaza and mostly uh, the product of um, other members of the Saga team that kind of went off and tried to do something new uh, with with the, the sort of mechanics of the Saga series. Um, the perhaps most well-known non-Saga Saga game is um, Legend of Mana, Legends of Mana, actually. Hmm. Uh, a game that was overseen by Kawazu that is uh, a... You know, it is a mana game, uh, first and foremost, but 
the reason I bring it up and why I'm talking about it as a saga game is that Legends of Mana is probably the most, or Legend of Mana is probably the most divisive of the Mana games. It, yeah, that's fair. It yeah, it, it does a lot of things that are not you know expected in the series. Um, you know the while well, the the standard you know action combat is still there, the top down perspective and all of that is is uh, you know still part of it. Um, they changed the way that the story develops. Instead of being a linear narrative, you actually place uh, artifacts on a world map, which unlocks different uh, side quests. There is no really, there, there. I guess there's technically two or three main plot lines, um, but they're dependent on, you know, how you place these, these markers on the map. And if you don't know what, things to place where and how to place, you know, certain items in relation to others. Um, you can lock yourself out of entire, you know, uh, storylines, entire side quests and things like that. So it pulls from that non-linear open world kind of discovery based gameplay of a saga game where, you know, you're kind of, the only way you find out what to do in these games is to walk around, talk to NPCs, revisit locations, and try to, you know, find these invisible triggers um, <laughs> that might open up something in a place you've already been before, right? So yeah, you complete yeah, so... a side quest in one region. Go ahead, go ahead. I'm, I'm, I'm learning something about myself right now because I didn't get very far in uh, that Mana game either. <laughs> yeah. And I, I mean, I think it came down to I just didn't know what to do next. And yeah. it, that's the exact same thing that I, I was going through with some of these saga games that I got through the first, you know, four or five hours. And then I was like, well, what do I do? I think I beat the game. Yeah. And so I think, you know, one of the things that that um, I love about these games, but the reason why I think that they are so divisive is that they really rely on the player discovering how the games are meant to be played. There's almost no tutorializing to be found in these uh, in this series. I think um, you know Legends of Mana has the most in in the way of tutorializing of the Kawazu games. And then um, I would say I, you know, I make the argument that um, Scarlet Grace does a pretty good job with some of that as well. Um, but definitely from the PlayStation Two Unlimited Saga back to Final Fantasy Legends. What was so unique about these games were how little was told to the player. Um, most of it had to be discovered through gameplay um, and repeated attempts, right, to figure out the order of operations, how to, you know, make your way through the narrative to see everything there is to see. Um, so I think now is probably a good place to just kind of take a break. Let's let's pull back, you know, given a brief overview of what makes these games interesting. We'll take a break, come back, and then I'm going to dive into why I love these games so much. We'll talk a little bit more about this non-linear approach, you know, the level system, the combat systems, um, and I'll mention some of the games that are a few of my favorites in the series, then we'll figure out which one you're going to be playing over the next couple of months. And we're back. Matthew, back right. to you. So I'm going to break this section down into kind of three categories. Um, you know, I want to talk about what makes these games. Because the first half, right, I kind of 
threw a lot at you. Uh, talked about where these games came from. You know, mentioned the the games in the series uh, that are most well known and easiest to access. Talked about why they they differ from uh, a lot of other JRPGs in the genre. But now we need to kind of get a little more uh, you know focused, a little more granular on why I think these games are worth experiencing. Um, and so I'm going to break it down into three categories, and those are uh, combat character development, and exploration. Right? These are the three kind of key pillars, I think, of a saga game, the things that make them the most interesting uh, series for me personally in uh, JRPGs right now, um, and what is both the most divisive and most compelling for fans of the series, right? Most divisive among uh, detractors and most compelling among fans of the series. So it is kind of, the, you know, those three categories are the make or break for a lot of people. If you, you know, can get behind these systems, you'll enjoy the series if you can kind of spend the time to learn it. Um, or it might just not be for you and you'll never get into the series. Um, I think that's a perfectly fair approach to take when talking about Saga. Let's start with um, character development, right? I want to talk about the characters in these games because um, one thing that has been relatively consistent throughout many of the Saga series is the role of um, different races in uh, in characters um, throughout the series. In the, the early Final Fantasy Legends games, you had... Um, you had monster characters, you had robots, you had humans, and then you had uh, what were known as espers or um, mutants in the, the English uh, translation. And each of these four uh, main character classes plays very differently and develops very differently from uh, one another. So, you know, in the early games, party development was really crucial. You actually created your, you know, in the Legends games, you created a party of three or four characters, um, and then these were the characters that you would travel the game. So there were different builds that you could create depending on what style of gameplay you liked. Um, and many of these mechanics return in later games in the series, particularly in the, in the Frontier series, which is why I want to, you know, spend some, some time with these uh, the character classes. Um, in you know, for example, in the early games in Final Fantasy Legends, you would build a party of uh, three characters, and you might decide, you know, I'm going to build uh, one human, one mutant, and a monster character. And then you jump into the game, and the game tells you pretty much nothing about what that means, right? You get to the character create screen, and they say, here, pick a race, pick, you know, a, a character, uh, name them, and go. And then you jump into the game, and you start playing, and you realize, you know, your mutant's getting pretty strong pretty quickly. Um, your fighter has really not, your, your human fighter has really not done much in the last hour. Very little about them has changed, but they do seem to be getting consistently a little bit stronger, a little more health, a little uh, bigger stats. Um, you, know, you found a shop where you could feed them some items and they you know, boost their, their attack power a little bit. Um, but your monster, at the end of each fight, you're being asked whether or not you want to consume the, the thing that you just killed. And sometimes it makes your character stronger, and other times it makes it weaker, and sometimes you don't even know what is happening. Um, and by six hours in, you've got this mishmashed party of just completely uh, unsynced characters that have not nearly enough health or combat expertise to get you through the next dungeon that you're encountering. Um, and this sense of like overwhelming systems, this sense of confusion over how to develop and build a party is consistent in a lot of 
you know these experiences because the game doesn't tell you much about what the you know what that means but what's really cool about it is once you dive in and start to understand it you realize that there's kind of a a, a different approach to building classes that really opens it up to variety right uh, i mentioned before that these games are meant to be kind of experienced multiple times they're meant to be run through a few times you just kind of go in and see what you get the first run sometimes you'll make it to the end sometimes you'll miss entire side quests and really cool you know story beats um but you know, they're quick, they're relatively brief experiences, and so you jump back in, build a new party, try it again, you know, experience the world a different way. Um, and part of that is in how you build out your characters. Um, and in the early games, that meant, you know, learning that in order to make a strong robot, for example, you would save your best equipment for the robot, because robots don't level up in a traditional way, they don't get new skills from uh, fighting, they learn new abilities and get stronger by equipping stronger gear right the better the gear the stronger they get and that continues into um the saga frontier in saga frontier one uh the the robot character uh t260 uh gets you know stronger by equipping better gear uh espers or mutants uh level up stats dependent on what skills and abilities they use. You use a lot of, uh, you know, magic, your MP is going to go up. You use a lot of physical attacks, your HP and strength are going to go up. And so depending on how you play your character, you can build out a party that is more like a, you know, a traditional Western RPG party, right? Where the roles are dependent on what the the creatures and the humans and stuff do. Humans can level up traditionally, but they can also boost through uh, stat items, right? They're the only class that can gain uh, levels that way. And so you can uh, break the game pretty much by going above the 99 stat counter in the original Legends games um, and boost your, I think it's up to like 255 or something. You can boost uh, mm. your character's strength. So you don't see it. And if you go too far, you tip back over to one. Uh, and so there's this interesting uh, kind of back and forth where you have to know the different kinds of you know player races and characters to know what it is that you're building. Um, and that's kind of, you know, the early games really, you know, built into that. And then later in the series, particularly in Romancing Saga and the Saga Frontier series, and then pretty much every game that's come since, um, you get the spark system, the tech spark system. And this is probably what makes um, the combat and character development so enjoyable in the Saga series. Um, you know, in a traditional JRPG like Dragon Quest or Final Fantasy, in most entries in those series, no, I'm not talking, you know, when we get into like the materia and the grid systems of later Final Fantasies, but, you know, in the early going, um, you kind of knew what you would be getting based off of what level you were, right? What class you were and what level you were dictated what new skills and abilities you would learn. You would hit a certain threshold and all of a sudden you would unlock, you know, the next fire spell. You, you know, mm -hmm. fired levels up to, to Fyra, Firaga, right? And so on and so forth. Totally not how it works in most of the Saga games. In fact, what Saga does that's really cool is it allows you to customize your characters by what weapons you equip them with right? Um, or what spells you choose to purchase or uh, equip them with. And, you know, for example, in Saga Frontier, perhaps the best example of the tech spark system of all of the games, um, magic users can be locked out of competing schools of magic, right? By 
Basically, if you have light and dark magic, you can choose one or the other. If you have spells in light, your character can't cast spells of dark. And so you have to make decisions about you know, how do I want to build out my spellcasters for this particular playthrough? Do I want to have a character who's really good at buffing the party and keeping them topped off with health? Because healing is super rare in these games. Um, it's really hard to heal because combats are difficult. Enemies hit really hard, um, and you know you reheal at the end of every combat. So, individual battles are meant to be really challenging. Right? Yeah, they're Healing. really hard. Even like yeah. random encounters. Yeah, random encounters can be as difficult uh, as boss encounters in a lot of these games because the game is designed such that you you are rewarded for challenging harder enemies for going places you're not supposed to be yet the more uh you know difficult the encounter the better the stat boosts you get on your characters so when you beat a combat for example in saga frontier right in the first saga frontier a couple things might happen um while you're fighting these monsters your your sword fighter may input a, a, a skill that you have. You may input a skill that you have to, to do. And then all of a sudden, right as your character is about to attack, a light bulb sparks above their head. And instead of the move you input for them to do, they do a completely different move that you didn't have in your character's uh, move list. And all of hmm. a sudden, at the end of that combat, you've learned that skill. And this is the tech spark system. And so you don't gain skills unless you use the weapon associated with them. Some skills require the unlock of previous skills, but these unlocks are random. And so you might grind for you know, a couple hours on really tough enemies and unlock a whole bunch of new abilities that you didn't even know you had. Or you could play the game normally as you know, someone who's just experienced it on your own, end the game with you know half of the abilities undiscovered for your character's chosen weapon type. It just depends on how you approach the game, right? It kind of rewards in some ways grinding and facing more difficult challenges. But in addition to that, right, in addition to the system where, you know, using something sparks stronger affinity for that particular skill or ability, um, it also affects how stats are distributed because there are no levels in saga games you don't go from level 1 to 99 instead your stats go from 1 to 99 or so right and so at the end of combat say you were hit a bunch of times in combat your stamina might go up and your hp raises right at the end of combat because you took a bunch of hits and your character you know survived the battle or you cast a couple spells and all of a sudden your uh, mana pool is larger in the next encounter and this is how these games kind of move away from uh, these these more rigid, linear character progressions, um, where you have more control over how you build out your party, what the final result looks like, right, and who you play with. Um, yeah, it in sounds a way like, that... a, like a really organic way to level up your characters too. Yeah, I think that's what's really cool about it is you're you're you are essentially rewarded for playing with the characters you want to play with and using the weapons that you want to use. Now, that doesn't mean that some characters don't have better affinity for different types of weapons, right? And in, in, in some games, you know, especially in the Romancing Saga games, um, certain characters can't learn certain ab abilities. Like, uh, there are characters who, you know, no matter how often they use a two-handed sword, they'll never learn one or two particular moves from that skill tree. Right. And so knowing what a character's affinity is, you know, you can build some really broken 
setups in these games because you can just abuse, you know, in uh, Soccer Frontier, for example, um, unarmed combat is generally pretty weak early on, right? Not using a weapon, punching, um, your characters start out really weak. They don't do a lot of damage. They, um, the moves are a little lackluster. A lot of them are throw abilities and certain you know, monsters, if they're too large, can't be thrown, right? So you, you can't even use certain attacks on certain enemies and things like that. But as you progress in the game and as you commit more to these, these you know, hand-to-hand -hand fighters, um, the strongest attack in Saga Frontier is the last move that you unlock as a hand-to-hand -hand combat, right? as a hand-to-hand -hand fighter. Um, and so you're rewarded for playing, you know, these sort of weaker uh, combat characters early on by um, building and developing towards you know these really broken uh, end game builds that make you know that trivialize truly trivialize some of the later fights. But you don't have to play it that way, right? And so there's there's this you know unlike some of these other games which don't really allow for that ability to kind of lean into the brokenness of these systems saga really encourages you to experiment with the gameplay in a way to find um you know methods of overcoming challenges that are um you know some would would call them cheese but you know it's it's just learning the system so well that you're able to manipulate the game in your favor um because these are not easy games, as I've mentioned, you know, you can be one shot pretty easily in most of these games. It's, you know, the game over screen is a common, uh, a common occurrence in most saga games. I think, uh, uh, aside from the random battles, they have some of the toughest end boss fights in all of Square's, uh, catalog. Um, some of the end bosses are reminiscent of super bosses in other games, you know? Um, hmm. and if you don't build your parties correctly, um, it's not uncommon for you know players new to these systems who don't use a guide or you know haven't ever you know don't have the patience for learning these systems to get to the end game uh, survive all the way to the final boss and then realize that their build is just such that there's no way that they can possibly beat the end boss as they've currently developed their party um you know that's, that's an not, awful feeling i've been there it's, with other it's games. horrible it's horrible but um at the same time there's there's something really cool about pushing through that and you know figuring out a way around it and most of these games offer you some kind of out uh, some kind of way of, of getting around those those roadblocks because of their non-linear fashion you can go off and uh you know in most instances you can leave where you are and go back and continue to level and, and spark up your character and, and things like that there are a few games in the system because there is another um there's another system known as the battle rank system which um as I said, there are no levels in this game. So the way that the game uh, keeps the difficulty consistent is by tracking how many fights you have had um, in a given game. And most of the games in, in the Saga series have some form of the battle rank system where every time you you know, have a random encounter, uh, uh, you know, you add one tally to your battle rank. Uh, and as that number goes up, you know, or to your battle rank tally. Uh, and once it hits a certain threshold of uh, encounters, your battle rank raises from one to two up to whatever the top rank is for that particular game. And alongside that, the enemies in a region will 
level up as well. Some levels will be plus or minus battle rank. So you might go back to an area that is a negative two battle rank. So if you're battle rank nine, you go to that zone, you'll fight battle rank seven, right? So even though you've made it to where in most zones, you're fighting the hardest possible enemies all the time, um, they almost always leave you a zone where you can go back and grind and level up a little bit, right? On easier challenges, if you've messed up your characters enough. Um, but it's just a really cool system that encourages you to seek out harder challenges so you get better stat ups, gain skills quicker, and keep your battle rank low, right? And so you're you're encouraged to kind of breeze through these easy areas, challenge harder zones, you know, grind in tough areas, and really work towards making uh, strong parties that can overcome whatever challenge gets thrown their way, hmm. which I think so, is really cool. So we've talked a little bit about characters and character builds and um you know what what you should be thinking about as you build your team for the end of these games yeah um talk a little bit about just the structure of we've talked about about these games being non-linear but yeah. specifically like choosing your path like it, it mm -hmm. seems i don't know if this is probably a really um surface level comparison but it seemed a little octopath to me whenever I first started playing Frontier. Yeah. Mm -hmm. um, how how true is that? Like, do, do these stories like sort of sit isolated on their own, or do they weave in and out of each other as they go? Do you do you meet these characters as you move on? I know it might be mm -hmm. different for every game, but yeah, gonna... yeah. So the. I think the the games to really focus on here are the two most popular series, or I should say, let's we'll do three. We'll we'll talk, you know, the Romancing Saga, the Saga Frontier, um, and Scarlet uh, Saga Scarlet Grace are the you know very similar in this way, where you are presented at the at the beginning of the game with a choice. You know, Saga Frontier One has, like I said, um, eight different character paths you can choose from. In that game, each of the individual story paths are completely unique. Um, the bosses you fight are, you know, the main bosses you fight will be different. The locations you travel to will largely be the same, but many of them will have uh, a few unique zones um, or at least different um, uh, kind of, you know, you might go to a zone earlier or later in a story depending on whose narrative you're following. Um, you will cross paths with a handful of characters. You know, each character can recruit different main characters from Saga Frontier 1 depending on their relationships in the story um, and other characters are you know locked out depending on you know whether or not they would see each other in their travels right and so Saga Frontier 1 really encourages you to play all eight narratives because each one is a unique experience both mechanically and uh, narratively uh, and, and so the non-linearity of that game is more that you choose one of eight adventures and you can play them in any order you want. You'll experience a whole different set of mechanics. You know, if you play Blue, for example, um, his story is based around magic. And so you get a lot of characters that you recruit that are magic based. You learn how the spell system works in the game um, and it kind of teaches you the systems in miniature. Um, whereas if you play as someone like um, like Red, he has a much more streamlined narrative. Instead of being uh, thrown onto a world map like Blue, where he can go anywhere he wants at any time, it doesn't matter, he just goes to the airship, picks a, a zone, and starts traveling until he unlocks you know story beats by randomly stumbling across them, Red will be uh, on a ship, 
He'll talk to a guy, the guy will send him to his next mission location, and he'll complete that mission before returning to the ship and continuing that cycle, right? Before it breaks out at the end and allows for a little bit more uh, free traversal. And so, you know, in most of these games, you know, in the Romancing Saga series, for example, you have maybe a, a, an hour or two at the beginning of the game where you know, there's some story beats, you learn the larger plot of the game, you know, what's going to happen, um, and then you're set off onto the world map and told, so go, figure it out, right? Find what's out there to find. Um, so you talk to NPCs in town, you get bits of information, you know, someone will mention that there's some bandits raiding uh, nearby, and as soon as you've talked to that person, you go back out to the world map, and now there's a cave that you didn't know existed, right, that's on your map, uh, and you can go explore it, right? And so these games really encourage you to talk to a lot of NPCs, travel to different locations, um, revisit stuff after you've completed quests to see if you've unlocked anything new um, and in most of them you can recruit and uh, you know get rid of characters freely as you go um, so you can kind of build your party out depending on who you run into in the world um, and so uh, no two playthroughs are going to look exactly the same which is really cool about this um, now they all have some kind of main narrative but Truly, most Saga games excel on their side quests. That's where a lot of the really interesting story beats happen. A lot of the world building and the lore of a Saga game plays out in side quests, which are often missable, time-gated, uh, based off of your battle rank. You know, For example, um, Romancing Saga 1, the minstrel song uh, in particular, is known for being very strict with its, um, with its time, uh, like its time-gating. If you complete uh, a quest out of order, um, you potentially you potentially lock yourself out of entire quest chains. You know, boss fights, new characters to to recruit, um, narrative arcs that are really important to you know what is going on in the world and that kind of stuff. So these games, uh, unlike uh, you know Final Fantasy, where you don't miss much in a Final Fantasy. Very few things in Final Fantasy are ever completely locked away. Now, there's moments where you know a, a city might get destroyed or a zone gets locked off, and you you know lose a side quest here or there. But most of those are minor fetch quests and, and things. And don't really flesh out the world all that much, at least in, in my experience. Yeah, Definitely not the case in a Saga game. Uh, most of what is compelling and interesting about those games happens outside. Of the main story. If you play through most of these games just playing the main narrative, you could finish them in uh, maybe a dozen hours or less, hmm. on average. Um, to put that into perspective, you know, I played, um, you know, I played most of these games, you know, in their remastered forms. Um, you know, I didn't play Final Fantasy Legends when they first came out. I got those in the in the recent collection of Saga, and that's where I played those uh, most recently. Same with the Romancing Saga series. My experience was with Saga Frontier 1. That was really the only Saga game I had played for, you know, when it came out, at the time it came out. Um, I have since, in the last two years, played through every game available in the U.S. with the exception of Unlimited Saga. Um, and I, I've loved all of them. They've been, uh, you know, amazing experiences. But what, um, you know, what I like about them is you can sink 
60 plus hours into a saga game if you do side quests and uh you know explore the the world and and you know learn all these these you know hidden narratives and stuff like that or you can spend 12 hours if you just want to go through a character's story and be done with it you know saga frontier is probably the best example of this where uh you know the character loot uh in theory you can beat his uh, you know without even speed running it you could beat his his uh narrative in four hours or less because mm. uh as soon as it starts you have the option of going right to the end boss now you'll get destroyed if you do that but um you you know you have the option uh to to travel to the end boss at any time um and most of the games offer some kind of variation of that where uh, you can make it to the end game uh much earlier than you would anticipate in most of these experiences well, you've you've pretty much sold me on on this playthrough. So I, I've got a couple of questions. I know yep, we're uh, we're wrapping up here. So um, the first question is: So I have Frontiers one, and I have Scarlet Grace. I'm leaning yep. more towards Frontiers. So I want your opinion on that. And then um, whichever game you pick, um, what are like? I know we've talked about a lot here, but what are like the essential tips that you would give me a brand new player, relatively brand new player to this series on, you know, getting through my first playthrough? So um, we'll start with uh, both of the games. I'll, I'll kind of go over each of their merits um, and why one might choose one or the other, because I think Saga Frontier 1 and Saga Scarlet Grace are the two best entry points to this series. If you've never played one of these games before, those are the games you should play because they're the most likely you're most likely to complete at least one run through in uh, either of those games as opposed to jumping into romancing saga you know two or three which are uh, much harder um far more obtuse and and uh, really good games but um really difficult to play without a guide now if you want the best experience the most modern experience saga scarlet grace is the one for you um it's got the most tutorializing out of any saga game in the the series um so it does a little bit more hand holding than some of them it does have the option depending on which character you choose to kind of um you know to kind of tweak that um it also has probably the uh, clearest narrative um, of the of the games uh, like the easiest to, I should say to to kind of get on the the story path and continue along the story path without getting you know sidetracked unless you play certain characters but um, in that game if you're gonna do Scarlet Grace I would recommend you start with Erpina she is the uh, beginner friendly character her story is largely linear you'll be told where to go and and what to do in most instances um and uh you'll learn a lot about the systems of saga by playing through her arc um you know that was the first game that i played um uh, you know after doing like the remaster stuff that was the first game that i really played without ever looking at a guide right because i played through saga frontier one and i used a guide for most of it um because that was what was recommended to me and that's what i'm going to recommend to you for for most of these games but i would say for scarlet grace it's probably the only game in the series where i wouldn't recommend i would say start with Erpina, don't use a guide and just see how it goes um absolutely a, a good experience for starting uh with with the series but i do think that the Saga Frontier remaster that came out, was it last year, the year before? Uh, 2020? Is that when it? I think when we so, got that? yeah. Yeah. The Saga Frontier remaster is, um, I think, the the high watermark of the Saga series right now. And the game that I'm going to 
recommend you play for our um, our, our check-in in two months. Um, it, it again, like Scarlet Grace, allows you to kind of customize the level of hand-holding that you get with the game depending on who you play as. Um, but what's nice about that uh, that particular game is one thing that they didn't do when they remastered the game was remove a couple of the exploit systems, the exploit, you know, the exploitable bugs that a lot of people found in the early, uh, the original release that allowed you to um, real early game in most character paths uh, grind out end game gear and uh, unlimited money. So if you want to experience Saga Frontier with a little bit of a handicap, but still just get the vibe of what a a you know a saga game is about. You play Soccer Frontier 1, you start with Red or uh, Amelia, and you look up how to do the junk, uh, the Junkyard glitch and the uh, Infinite Gold Bars glitch, and then you build an incredibly broken, uh, overpowered party, and you play through the game and see how, uh, you know, how it clicks with you. That'll uh, you know smooth out some of the difficulty, but even having endgame gear and unlimited money doesn't make the game easy. Um, it just makes it doable uh, for people that are you know unfamiliar and and uh, you know not very seasoned at the systems. Um, it's it's a great experience. You can get through a single playthrough. You can get through I think Red Story in about eight or so hours. I think on average uh, it's about ten hours per per story. Um, hmm depending on, you know, how much grinding, how much stuff you do. But there's a, a like I said, it's it's one of those games where if you look up a guide and just kind of look up some general tips, which again, I would say don't be afraid to go to a harder area and grind for a bit, you know, find out what the toughest enemy you can fight is, uh, equip the weapons you think your characters are going to use through the end game and just spend, uh, you know, an hour or two grinding uh, tough battles, running between town and back to the zones a little bit until you feel like you've built up a good stable of, uh, you know, abilities and stuff like that. But for the most part, um, that's a game that it can be really obtuse, but with a guide and a little bit of help is, is a great entry point into helping you know whether or not this is a series you'd be interested in pursuing you know, other games in. Yeah, the first time I played, I tried to play through it, I picked Blue, not knowing that Blue is like the most um, wide open yes, character. Yes, the, the worst choice you could pick because it's, like I said, it, you know, you pick Blue, he has uh, about a 30 minute intro and then it says, here's the entire world map go figure it out yeah um, it was it was not a, a great, nightmare yeah. not a great experience for for a new player I, I do think i think red like i said red or amelia are the two most streamlined they both have kind of like a mission based structure to their stories um that just kind of drag you from location to location uh the one thing i will say about um amelia's is that you you do run the risk of getting kind of soft locked because there are a few uh story triggers where you fight uh, really powerful bosses if you go to certain areas. Um, and one of those bosses happens to be in the early, uh, you know, in the early level um, grinding spot or the late game grinding spot that, you know, you, you're going to want to have uh, access to if you if you're a new player. So um, red's probably the best bet if you're learning the game. And what I would recommend you check out for your first playthrough. All right. Well, I've got my marching orders. Uh, one last question before yep. we break, and then afterwards we'll, we'll talk about our recommendations of the week. Um, where do you see this series going? So I know they're they're super invested right now in remastering some of these older games mm -hmm. and making them available on new hardware. 
Um, Scarlet Grace, like you said, is, is a few years old now. It was a, yeah. did you say it was a, a Vita game initially? It was originally a Vita game, yeah. Originally yeah. For the PlayStation Vita. So it, it, it's a Switch game as of 22, but, you know, an, a Vita game originally. Where is this series going now? What, what, what do you see as, as the next big step for it? Well, one of the reasons that I'm, you know, I, I'm really high on recommending this series right now is that it is kind of having a bit of a renaissance um, in the, you know, in the the industry because, it, you know, it like I said, it was 14 years between, you know, the failure of Unlimited Saga before we got a mainline, you know, console handheld, but still a mainline game in the series with Scarlet Grace. Um, and since then, we've seen the remasters and the remakes and rumor has it that there is currently a new game in development we have the remaster of uh of minstrel song coming out um soon and then there's apparently also a remake in the works which uh, a lot of speculation is that saga frontier 2 um, or unlimited saga is going to be remade um you know from the ground up um and so uh, you know if you get into the series and you enjoy what you you know play, there's a huge backlog of really good, really long, meaty you know uh, JRPGs to experience, and a a future of promises of remasters, remakes, and brand new games in the series. So I think that um, there's a there's a good chance. I don't think it'll ever you know uh, eclipse a Final Fantasy or a um, or a you know Dragon Quest, but I think it, it it absolutely when the new game releases, I think it has a chance to kind of slot in real nicely as the kind of third major uh, series. And it, and for fans of um, you know turn based JRPGs, I think that that's something we're never going to lose with this series. Um, and as Final Fantasy and potentially Dragon Quest move further and further from you know uh, traditional JRPG. Uh, mechanics even though saga does a lot of different things it's still uh, it has the potential to feel the most uh, traditional in the the coming years all right good to know we'll be right back with our game recommendations of the week Okay, Matthew, after an entire episode of a game recommendation, do you have another smaller recommendation? So by the time that this uh, game comes out, or this uh, episode comes out, we will be uh, knee-deep in uh, Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtles Shredder's uh, Revenge, so that is my recommendation. Play that. It comes out um, tomorrow when we record this. Uh, it'll have been out for a couple of days by the time you, you hear this. So get on that. It's going to be awesome. Play that game. Yeah, yeah. I'm really what looking forward to that one, too. Um, I've been playing a lot of Mario Strikers over the weekend. We, we talked about that a little bit um, off mic. Uh, really enjoying it. I can see the critiques, though. It's it's a pretty thin game. So, I mean, if you're, if you're a big fan of the Mario Strikers series like I am, um, know that the gameplay is really solid. Um, the passing, the shooting, um, all, all of the, like, like, core mechanics feel really tight um 
but when you boot it up, there's there's not much to the game. It it feels like it's it's really built to be a, a multiplayer online thing. And um, the trouble that I'm having with it right now is I'm having a hard time convincing, you know, six of my friends or seven of my friends to buy this game that is pretty limited just so that we can play online. So I guess that's my question because I'm I'm one of those friends that's on the fence with this. Is does it? Do you think it has legs as a you know a, a, something like a Mario Kart? Um, if you have the players, if you have the the people that play, do you think um, you know that that people that like to you know spend a night doing a cup in in Mario Kart would have the same you know lasting enjoyment of doing a tournament in strikers does it does it have that appeal yeah i think the the power of mario kart is in the courses mm-hmm. i mean part of part of the power is is customizing your cart too which in this new mario strikers you can do you can customize your gear to up your stats and stuff which is you know a cool little addition to the base game um but it has a few different fields, but ultimately it's a soccer pitch, you know, like it doesn't look different enough from any other pitch. Like when I was playing through, I picked a few different um, areas to play in and I didn't really notice any difference because I'm focused on the ball, my characters, like especially where my non-playable characters are so that I can make passes and, and, you know, score ultimately. So I, you know, I, I think that Mario Kart, the power is in the courses. Um, mm-hmm. It, but so I don't know. I don't think that it will have legs like that. Yeah. The one thing I'll say about it though, is it's very fun to pick up and play. It yeah. takes very little um, tutorializing to, to just start playing some of the more advanced um, mechanics and techniques. Yeah. You know, you might need to walk through the tutorial. That's, two minutes to figure out you know which button to press what combination you need to press to get the result you want but more or less i mean you could come over um tonight and pick up controller and start playing and have a good time yeah i've i've heard a couple people like refer to it as kind of like the more of a fighting game than a sports game um does that does that resonate with you do you think that's a fair kind of read of the gameplay um because that interests me if that's true. Because you know, one of the the joys of a fighting game is that, you know, in an individual match, there's not a lot of, you know, um, depending on you know the character picks and things like that. There's not a ton of surprises. You kind of know what to expect over the the minute and a half or whatever the the round lasts. But it's quick. It's snappy. There's a you know a nice back and forth, a, a real sort of mind game, you know, competitive element to it that. Um, like you said, it's just easy to kind of jump in and jump out of without, you know, spending too much of your time. Um, but there's there's a strategy to it that I think, you know, replaces the, um, the like, the need for constantly changing the, you know, the arena, right? Like, it, it, the, if the interactions between the two teams are strategic enough, it really doesn't matter what the pitch looks like, right? If, the, yeah. if the, that little gameplay loop is satisfying in, in that way. And it, does that, would you say that that is kind of the case with the game? Yeah, generally, I think so. It, that game is, it's so satisfying 
to win and to score. I mean, that is that it's just a feeling that you don't get with other sports games. Um, the the question about the fighting mechanic, you know, I think there's some truth in that using different items on the pitch. Like the, it's got the green shell um, from Mario Kart. It's got the red shell from Mario Kart and they they work in similar ways. The red shell is like a homing uh, missile and uh, there's a bomb bomb and a few other um, banana peels and things like that. And they really make it um, make the combat interesting. Um, and like the size of your character matters. Like if you're playing Peach and you try to slide tackle Bowser, he's just going to like laugh you off and keep going down the pitch. So there's there's some strategy in, OK, do I bulk Peach up and make her just an absolute tank? But in doing that, do I kill her speed stats? So, you know, th- there's there's some strategy in I've got four players. I need a well-balanced team. Um, and, you know, the characters have, have their own innate abilities. Like, you know, Toad is always going to be really fast, right? That's, that's just mm-hmm. his character in all of these Mario games. But you can load him down so that he becomes an absolute tank who can shoot from midfield, you know. Um, yeah. But it comes at a cost of his speed. It's it is a more thoughtful and strategic game than some of the other Mario Striker games I've played. Um, and I think that does like just the character customization, some of the combat does make for some interesting strategical moves, but. I wouldn't say if you're familiar with the striker series and you're coming to this game, you're going to feel right at home. Like it, it doesn't feel like it's doing anything new. Um, I mean, small things new. Yeah. But it's not reinventing the game. It, I love the striker series and it feels like Mario, gosh, Mario, that Nintendo is just saying, Hey, we need a sports title this year. What's it going to be? Yeah. Is next year going to be sluggers? Okay. Okay. Well, good to know. I mean, it sounds it sounds like if you can get the people together, it's a great you know evening party game. Yeah, sure. I think so. the The other downside is that Nintendo very rarely, if ever, discounts these games. Right. So it's never going to be a thing where you're going to you know walk into the store, get on Amazon, and see Mario Strikers for twenty bucks. Because then I think it's it's a much easier sell than. Fifty nine ninety nine for a game that, you know, you hope your friends have, but they probably don't because they're not super into the series. Yeah, yeah. Well, I'll have to come over and play it sometime soon, and then uh, maybe I'll pick it up as well. Yeah, it'll be a good time. All right. All right sounds good. That's the show this week. We'll report back in about a month and a half, two months, on how I'm doing on Saga. And in the meantime, um, next month, there's another showing tell Um, where I introduce Matthew to a series that I love. I'm excited for that. Uh, I mean, I know we've talked a little bit about it, but I'm curious to see if it's still going to be what we've discussed. Yeah, yeah, we'll see. All right, we'll be back in your inbox next week. All right, sounds good, Justin. Nice talking to you. Good to see you.